we're going to continue today in our Summer in Rome teaching series. Um, This is our last week in Rome. So I know you guys are going to miss the beautiful scenery that we've experienced, all of the uh, deep theological conversations that we've had, and we're going to move into stages of discipleship after this. But for today, we're hanging out in here. Um, I am going to pray for us to get started, and then we'll dive in, okay? Dear Lord, thank you for an opportunity to come together to recognize you, to praise you, to give you the honor and glory that you deserve. Lord, I thank you for the grace that community is, um, to be able to rub shoulders with people in different walks of life that have different backgrounds and stories and maybe even different thought paradigms and beliefs, but to be able to sit under your word and your teaching together on a Sunday morning, Lord, I just feel like that's that's a grace that you offer us. So thank you for that. We um, just ask you to take away distracting thoughts, to uh, remove our to-do list of the days ahead in this coming weeks, and let us just sit in your presence and sit in um, what it is you have for us this morning. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So in this teaching series, we've walked through a couple of the uh, attributes or titles of Jesus. I think I have a slide here for us to sort of recollect together. The first four chapters of Romans showed Jesus as rescuer. And then five through eight, we looked at Jesus as representative. Nine through 11, Jesus as reconciler. And then last but not least, chapter 12 through 16, Jesus as restorer. And so we're going to continue to sit in the restoration and beauty of the gospel, this restorative work that Jesus has done and continues to do in this last chapter. Just a couple of reminders for you guys. So uh, Romans is written by Paul. It's a letter to the church in Rome. It's actually Paul's longest letter. So he has, I think, around 13 letters in the New Testament. This by far is the longest. Uh, It's written to approximately six house churches. We think that it's around 100 people that Paul is writing to, um, but probably no more than 200 because each house church would probably have a max of like 20 to 30 people. Um, This time in Rome and these house churches are experiencing a good amount of diversity, both ethnically and uh, within their socioeconomic statuses. So that's just a reminder and recap for you guys. As we've mentioned up until this point, Paul has been advocating for unity Yes, unity, because if you'll remember, there's been a little bit of dissension. Jews, including Christian Jews, were actually expelled from Rome under Emperor Claudius. And now, I think about five to ten years later, as they came back into Rome, there's kind of this friction between the Jewish Christians that were exiled and the Christians that are present, the Gentile Christians. So um, there are two kind of problems that are there. Half of the Christians being addressed have status because they weren't exiled, and then and the marginalized that are coming back that were exiled want to maintain their ways. Spencer um, talked about kind of the kosher eating, the circumcision, some of these practices that they knew and kept. Um, there's friction there in those beliefs. So Paul doesn't really give ethnic designations for these two groups. He refers to them as those with power and status and those without power and status. Um, And thus we see a need for unity, or as we talked about last week, harmony or mutuality. That's kind of the need that Paul is speaking to. 
As I mentioned, Rome itself is very diverse, and that's equally represented in their house churches. So in these house churches, we see men and women, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. And keep in mind, as I use the term slave, we have sort of the definition that we know it as, but also included in this time in the scriptures, uh, about 50% or up to 50% of the Roman population would function under the slave or servant title Uh, And in the New Testament, this also included more of like a mutual relationship known as an indentured bond servant. And those folks would enter into a willing agreement, maybe to repay debt or to be able to receive income after a period of time. It was more of a mutually agreed upon um, title or role within, um, I guess, that indentured bond servant uh, concept. So I wanted to give you guys a little bit of an overview. I hope you're trekking with me. I wanted to add one more piece information that I think is important for today's teaching. And that is to um, give a context around sort of like the modernization of where Rome is at as a society at this point, like from a development standpoint, where are they? So we've talked sort of about culture. We've talked about some of the wrestling within the faith, but really like what's happening um, in terms of growth and development and modernization in that time. So I have a slide here to show you guys, but first of which is that Rome was the first empire to systematically coin or mint coins as a medium of exchange. So money has been created primarily or first used within the Roman Empire, uh, specifically for military. So I have a picture here of these um, coins. Wow, look at those bad boys. Who wants one of those? I bet they'd be worth quite a bit right now, actually. Um, So these coins were created as a medium of exchange. The second thing that's going on in this time period is that the Roman Empire has started to establish some form and method of engineering. Um, So when we think of engineering, we maybe have an idea that comes to mind. At this point in uh, Roman culture and society, the engineering that's taken taken place is um, they have created levers and pulleys in different ways to be able to like build and develop. Um, They've also uh, begun process or mapping out the Roman road. Uh, Anybody heard of the Roman road? Spencer's been talking about that a lot from a, um, I guess, spiritual sense and leading folks to the Lord, but it legitimately was a road. Here it is, where they uh, created stones to make a path. And just think about the way that this um, influenced the economy and trade and travel and things like that. Last but not least is the Romans conquered the Mediterranean. They absorbed the knowledge of the world of primarily Greece and North Africa. So I have a picture here of a map. This is um, the areas that they began to, I guess, conquer. And you see in the blue, if you can see, the Roman road and how that impacted being able to travel to some of these places. Um, The main reason I point that out is because of the knowledge that they were able to uh, kind of absorb and take from these areas as opposed to remaining in whatever small geographical sphere that you're in and that you've grown up in, the only knowledge you have is what's been passed down through generations. Now we're starting to access everyone else's knowledge that they've passed down from generations. Does that make sense? 
Okay, just wanted to set the stage for you there, both in monetary advancement, development, and acquisition of knowledge and intellect. So that's kind of what's happening in society right now. Though society um, in the Roman Empire was progressing as we know it, would you guys agree with me that the things that we just talked about were progression, advancement? So that they were experiencing that progression, the distribution of quality of and care for life in the Roman Empire had great disparity. In other words, there were um, large gaps between different social classes. Personhood, specifically, was suffering. So now we find ourselves, or they found themselves, having these marks of importance. We have the coin. We have these buildings and structures. We have this new information. But there began to be a shift from this communal survival, like we're all working together to make ends meet and to survive, now to this individual flourishing and wealth and success because now it's how many coins I have, how many buildings and structures we were able to construct, what information I obtained. Do you see that shift that's taking place? All the background knowledge that you guys need to be able to move forward today. Glad we're on the same page. Um, There's a Latin legal term. It's known as persona, which maybe we've heard of before, at least the root of that. And that is someone with full standing in law and in society. In other words, a full person. Last week, uh, I know Spencer joked about having half a friend. We laughed about that. But the reality was this was real life in this time period. Personhood or persona was challenged and was suffering. Only the head of the household in this time period was viewed as a full person, with others in the house kind of landing at various level or various degrees of personhood. For example, children um, were not considered full persons but could grow into personhood, specifically um, dependent upon their gender and even their order of um, like birth, if that makes sense. Women and slaves were viewed as property. Um, slaves, as I mentioned before, made up about 50% of the population, indentured bond servants, and since slaves had no personhood, they were often not even called by a name, or if they were, it was a birth order or a contribution to society, in other words, like first, second, third, fourth, or um, useful, helpful, cleaner, carrier, those types of things. So that's kind of um, the personal value that these folks were given, no names attached to um, their personas just instead like their order of birth or what they could contribute back. That is the disparity of personhood in this time period. So I'm going to dive into our reading for today now. I promised I would get there. Uh, I want you guys to open your Bibles to Romans 16. And before we start reading, I want to give you time to access your imagination I have always heard that the older we get, the less we either have or use our imagination. Maybe those two go together. Um, I personally, as an accountant by trade, agree with that. (laughs) I don't get to tap into that imagination much. But I want you guys to close your eyes once you get to Romans 16. And I want you to imagine with me your favorite movie. Y'all better have your eyes closed. Some of y'all looking back at me. Thank you. Imagine your favorite movie, fast forward to the very end, and this is a time to be interactive. I want you to tell me what you see. At the end of the movie, you're allowed to say it out loud. Okay, Christmas sweaters. Keep trying. What's at the end of the movie? 
Oh, wow. Bo, Bo just beat y'all to the punch. We're done. Sorry, we're done with the imagination time. We got to the credits, the rolling credits. Bo's on it. So we're going to flip to Romans 16, and I want you guys to keep that in mind as we um, sit under the last chapter of Romans here. We're going to be looking first at verse 1 through 16, and then at verse 21 through 24. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They have risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Statius. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity in Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the house of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me. Greet and Cretus, Philegian, Hermes, Patrabas, Hermas, and other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philogius, Julia, Nereus, and his sisters, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. And we're going to jump over to verse 21. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sassipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who, has, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Cortus send you their greetings as well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How y'all feeling? Yeah, doing all right? (laughs) Shelby's looking at me like, why did we just read all those names? I prayed through all of that. I want y'all to know that the Bible Gate, I think it's Bible Gateway or Bible app, has where you can like play it and hear as someone else reads it. I just want y'all to know I have been listening to someone else read this chapter all week long. I hopefully got at least 50% of the pronunciations right. Okay, so why, why did we just read this? Do we think the rolling credits in a movie are important? Who actually, like, sits through those? Anybody? One person. Two? Okay. Do you read the names or are you just... Oh, okay. Marvel doesn't count. Anybody else still looking? <laughs> so, um, why is this important? 
I believe that there are more than just names that are written here. There is um, stories and there's reasoning that are worth tapping into. I also acknowledge that out of all of Paul's letters, these are the this is the most like greetings and names that he references at the end of a letter. So that poses the question, why or what's going on? Um, we just talked about the dehumanization of women and children and slaves in this time period. Anyone with those titles were consequently and immediately stripped of their personhood. What's interesting about that is as we read some of these names, you may have noticed that some of those, at least they had like feminine pronouns around, right? She Or feminine sounding names. Um, before I dive into that, I want to point out first language matters. So in the verses that we just read, there were a couple of times where you saw the phrase, the household of. Um, That is seen as an indicator of slaves being a part of that group of people. I know specifically verse 10 and 11, uh, there's also somewhere else in the passage where it says those who are with them. So we see in those instances, Paul also addressing slaves who we just were told in society have zero personhood. It also seems as though Paul knows these people at least fairly well. If nothing else, they've rubbed shoulders or he knows of them, but you hear him using language like beloved and dear friend and co-worker. That's interesting. Immediately, I see Paul instilling value and worth. He's greeting actual people where society says, okay, we dehumanize, these aren't people, they're a fraction of people, they have no worth and value, no names, no need to address. Paul subverts that and says, actually, I want to greet these people. He humanizes them. Second, I want to point out that names matter. We see Paul here using actual names I um, have spent time in ministry in the past, um, I don't know, 15 years or so, um, specifically in times working with the homeless or times working with uh, under-resourced youth. And in training in both settings, what was always told to me is that using a name actually mattered. That when you greet anyone that you're ministering to in that context, you learn their name, you look them in the eye, and oftentimes you shake their hand. And that's to instill and reinforce value and dignity in that person. I see Paul doing the exact same same thing here, at least in a written form, you know. Um, Some of the names that we see here are Jewish, some are Gentile, some are Latin. There's really a mixed group of people here that Paul is addressing. Some also are female or uh, have a feminine name. Now, I don't know what you guys know of Paul, but there's a passage of scripture that as a female, I often get informed about, as if I didn't know about it. Uh, It is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and as Paul is writing to Timothy, he says something like this, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must remain quiet. So I, as I've been wrestling through this last chapter in Romans, I've just found it interesting, ironic, a little wild and crazy, (laughs) that the Paul that oftentimes we see as being anti-woman is actually um, addressing and greeting and uplifting, calling them sisters and beloved and hard workers and co-workers. Um, It just really struck me. 
So we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning looking into some of the names that, that Paul laid out for us here in this letter um, and just getting a little bit more context because when we just see a name on a page, it's easy to fly past it. But when we start to understand that person's background or ethnic origin or status in society, we really start to see Paul's heart come to life through these greetings. So we're going to start with Phoebe. Phoebe's name actually means Titanus, which tells us that Phoebe was converted to the faith from a pagan background because no uh, self-respecting Jewish family would have ever named their daughter after a pagan god or goddess. To translate this into our society or maybe even a more familiar um, book or, excuse me, scripture or story in the Bible here would be like, instead of us naming our daughter Selah, which in case you're wondering is from the book of Psalms, it means a pause for praise. How beautiful, right? What if instead of Selah, we uh, decide to call her Gomer from the story of Hosea and Gomer? Interesting, right? Like, I walk in, as pastors, we walk in, hi, we'd like to introduce you to our daughter Gomer. Yes, she's named after a prostitute. If y'all know any Gomers, I'm really sorry. But, like, <laughs> that tells us a, a little bit about Phoebe's background, that she was born into a pagan family and then was converted to the faith. So that's this Phoebe that we heard of here. If Paul really felt that women should be silent, why did he have Phoebe, a pagan convert female, deliver this letter to Rome? The, the letter carrier in this role that she would have had was actually a role where she acted as a proxy, and, it, and Paul would have extended his authority to her. So she wasn't just like USPS, like showing up, handing a letter. Like she, his, his authority was extended through her. Um, she would have actually brought the response back to Corinth from the Church of Rome. And not just that, her main job would have been to share the contents of the letter and to make sure that they were put into a Effect. Uh, in other words, she was fielding questions. Does anybody in this room want to be the one fielding questions for the letter to Rome, this whole book of Romans that we've been studying? I don't want to. It's been tough. But that was Phoebe's role. Phoebe was the first person to explain or exposit Romans. Interesting, right? Paul would have expected Phoebe to interpret Romans, and it's impossible to pass over the irony of that situation since so many of us have accused Paul of restricting women uh, from teaching or sharing or leading, yet he chose this woman to actually embody his letter. She would have actually uh, performed the letter, like she would have known and rehearsed when to look at this group of people and then when to look at that group of people and when her voice should have inflection and when it should go back down lower. Like there would have actually been an acting component to Phoebe's delivery here, which I find very fascinating. Paul would have instructed her in all of those things and without a doubt, she would have rehearsed it in Paul's presence. Some think that she may have even had the whole letter memorized and that she performed it by memory. That's crazy. Some people think that. Who knows? We'll move past Phoebe to Priscilla and Aquila. It is thought based on Aquila's name that he is from the Jewish origin and potentially a freedman. So of the two, Aquila is the male, Priscilla is the female. 
They are a couple. These two are a duo. It's sort of strange that you see the names mentioned together. Oftentimes, just the male is addressed in a, in a unit like this. Um, it's even stranger that the woman's name is first. So when we see Priscilla, or some of your translations may say Prisca, when we see her name first, that speaks to something because order of names is important. It alludes to her potentially having more involvement in ministry than her husband, her being the front runner in the ministry. We know that Paul has a relationship with Priscilla and Aquila. It seems to be equal between the two of them, if not Priscilla's a little bit of a stronger relationship. We'll keep moving at who Paul is addressing here. Epinetus. This is Paul's beloved. It says he was the first convert in Asia Minor. Through his name, um, and I believe it also says in the text, he's a Gentile and possibly a freedman. Mary is seen as a hardworking Jew. We get down to Junia and Andronicus. Andronicus is a Jewish name, so that gives us his background and ethnic origin. Junia is an interesting name. For many years um, in translation, Junia was actually lost, and instead the name Junius is what um, I guess had been come to. Junius has a masculine uh, feel to it or is, is more on the masculine side. And though there are no traces of the word Junius being used in this time period in any other form of literature, as Bible translators and scholars in a certain time period in history, they felt the need to change the name from a feminine name to a masculine name, just in case it wasn't a feminine name. On the other hand, Junia is referred to in many other times in other literature in this time, in this time period. So since that time, folks have decided, no, Junia actually was a female. We need to change the translation back. She's the only female to be called an apostle in the New Testament. I won't keep going through all these names. There are different Jewish names present. Um, Mary, Herodian, Rufus, and his mother. There are Latin names, Ampliatus, Julia, Urbanus. Then there are lots of other Greek names that are remaining. But as I said before, Rome itself is very diverse, and that's equally represented in these house churches that Paul is addressing. Male, female, rich, poor, Gentile, Jew, slave, and free. And as I mentioned before, only the head of the household was considered credible as a full person with uh, personhood and value and dignity in this society. And yet, Paul speaks into this fragmented, divided people and advocates for unity, and not just unity, but siblinghood, like identity in the kingdom of God. And he restores humanization of those at the bottom of society's totem pole. He changes their story. He writes something new. Just in this crazy credit rolling, name calling greeting, we see Paul subverting the culture and instilling identity and humanity into God's children. Each person had their former identity apart from Christ. They had their gender or their socioeconomic status, their legal status, their ethnicity. Those things were all present and real. But Paul reorders those. And that's what the kingdom of God is about. That's what Christ does, reorders our former identities so that the primary identity is in Christ and everything else falls subject to that. Our identity is reordered in Christ and everything else falls subject to that. And I say that because being in Christ doesn't mean you lose everything that you were. Like, I'm still a female. I'm still Anglo. 
being in Christ doesn't change those things, but my um, identity is reordered so that being in Christ is primary in all the other attributes, mom, employee, sister, spouse, child, student, whatever that is, fall under that primary identity. You guys checking with me? It's not eliminated. So Paul is greeting all these people. We just looked at who he greeted, but I want to actually spend some time looking at that word greet. Because like, what is it? Greet? Does that just mean greet? Like, what, what do you do, right? Let's look. So greet here is actually a plural command, second person plural, where Paul's addressing a group of people and telling those people to greet the people he's referencing. Like, Paul's not directly greeting those people. Instead, as Phoebe reads the letter, she's imploring to those folks, okay, now go greet the people I've named. Does that make sense? Phoebe's sharing the letter, and then she's saying, now go greet these other folks. The way he has his primarily Gentile audience do the greeting for him is actually part of his strategy for reconciliation among the Christians in Rome. In other words, that was strategic, what he's doing. He wants the marginalized Jewish Christians who were back in Rome from exile to be embraced. And he's writing a letter to sort of create or facilitate that environment. He's looking at those with privilege and power and saying, you have to take the first step. You initiate. You go out and welcome and greet these people. It's this redemptive influence where you use your your influence and your um, social status to then be able to redeem society around us. The verb for greet here that's used over and over again actually means to wrap one's arm around them, to embrace. So it's just not like, hi, how are you? Welcome. It's like, no, help these people feel at home again. Hug them, embrace them, wrap your arms around them. In verse 16, it even says, offer a holy kiss as well. Y'all like, okay, it was fine until we had to kiss them. I don't want to do that. That um, phrase of offering a holy kiss actually translates to a command that means something along the lines of treat those named as family and welcome them into your home and into your circle. So go a step further. As you are greeting these people that I've instructed you to greet with your influence and authority that you have, break down the barriers and the walls here. Use your influence redemptively and go the extra mile. Don't just say hello, but embrace them. Welcome them into your home. Consider them family. Take care of them. This is what Paul's greeting actually means. So if greeting means embracing, kissing, I even saw in one commentary that could mean wash their feet or serve them, um, this greeting was actually the origin of the Christian tradition passing of the peace. So we do every Sunday morning for a couple minutes after worship before our time of teaching. Y'all better be glad I'm not asking you to kiss anybody or wash their feet, but just know that that's the origin of that time. Help someone who feels like an outsider feel at home. Welcome them, love on them, welcome them into the fold and the family. I believe that Paul is addressing privilege and power here. This is at the core of the culture of the time that he's in and consequently consequently, uh, present in his house churches as well. But I see it in our time too. 
who are the people around us that we could use our cultural influence to be able to redeem their place in society, that we could welcome them into our home and our lives and our family and show the love of God, though society says they're outcasts. That's what Paul is doing here. We are to be bridge builders, church, especially to those with less societal power and status. That's the call that we have as followers of the way of Jesus. Latasha Morrison has a book called Be the Bridge, and in referencing John 17, she writes, Jesus' final prayer was oriented around a vision for unity, and he has commissioned his church to be the healing agent that brings the ministry of reconciliation into the broken and fractured places of society. In other words, um, because of the vertical reconciliation that we have experienced through Christ, he has reconciled us to the Father. We now have access. We are seen as whole and complete. We are compelled, and it is now our ministry to engage in horizontal reconciliation with people in the world around us. We have been given the free gift of vertical reconciliation, and that propels us into a work. The vertical one's free, the horizontal one's a work, a work of reconciliation around us. Not only does Paul subvert the culture, but now he is looping in others and uh, empowering them to build bridges and institute reconciliation as well. Paul's saying, I'm not just going to do the work of like encouraging these folks and greeting them on my own. I'm going to call other people to do it too. He's getting the troops involved, you know? Paul went out of his way to destabilize the social norms and statuses as he affirms lots of Gentiles, slaves, Jews, and women. He's hitting all the marks across the board. I've heard a lot of people say that Christianity is anti-women or pro-slavery. What's unfortunate about that is they're looking through a lens of Western 19th century and part of early 20th century Christianity. And unfortunately, that's not the roots That's not where it came from. That's not what we're supposed to learn from. Christ gives agency, voice, and power to the weak. As his ambassador, Paul created a new norm that would actually grate against the outside norms. And what Paul did is what we're supposed to do. The kingdom norms and the societal norms that we see around us will be grating against each other. Like as I say the word great, y'all think about an actual like cheese grater. Like as this present stuff, it's just, it's messy, you know, and it hurts. Anybody been grating some like vegetables and got their finger caught once or twice? Just me. Okay, if you come to my house, I might have grated my finger into that cheese. Who knows? Like that is what's happening is the kingdom values and norms rub up against society. It's painful. It tears things apart. It's work. Earlier, we discussed the progression of ancient Rome and some of the things that they were encountering as society developed. I um, would like to mirror that with what Andy Crouch refers to as the three revolutions that made our world today. The first of which was the financial revolution. This is where wealth shifted from being rooted in the fruitfulness of land, like what my land can produce, to primarily in money. In the 1300s, the first bank was founded in Italy, and that's what kind of kick-started this financial revolution. The second is the Industrial Revolution, the revolution of work, where we went from body 
engines, of people doing all the work, to now we've created something that can work for us. The 1700s, the steam engine was the first of this. And then lastly, the digital revolution, which formalized the way we shift how we handle knowledge. So just in ancient Rome, same, the same as in ancient Rome, when wisdom was passed down through generations in a particular people group or geographical area, now we see this information transfer and download through digi the digital realm. So we had the financial revolution, the industrial revolution, and the digital revolution. That is what Andy Crouch says um, made our world today, the three primary revolutions. There's an obvious result to this church. There is um, untold prosperity and benefit that we have all received. We are all beneficiaries from this development. Like we, if anybody disagree, like, we participate in the beauty. You drove here. You know what I mean? You probably checked the weather this morning. You maybe potentially have a bank account and a credit card. You know what I mean? Like, this has made life easier in so many ways, and we have to acknowledge that. The unfortunate downside of this progression, just like in ancient Rome, is that we have replaced personal with impersonal. For example, let's look at some of these. The financial revolution. We now have a debit card. Yesterday, I went to the grocery store to pick something up, my debit card. I did not even have to interact with the person that was ringing up my groceries. I didn't even have to insert my card because now the chip reader, like you can just do the wave thing. That's scary to me. I waved my card in front of it. I don't know if I even looked them in the eye and kept moving because that's what this progression, the financial revolution has allowed me to do. Now that interaction isn't as personal as when perhaps I live on some sort of farmland and I'm negotiating with my neighbor who has different crops and together we have to work together to survive. And so we have this relationship where we're rubbing shoulders and uh, all contributing to society for the sake of survival. Now it looks different. It's less personal. Same with the Industrial Revolution. We went from people doing the work and that being a personal interaction to now we just get to jump in a car. Nobody's on a horse and buggy taking me to church this morning. That would have required some sort of personal interaction. Now I just have my own individual car. I could go on, but I think you guys are following me, right? It's so normal and routine for us, but we at some point in society have traded personhood for uh, perhaps a little bit more power and convenience and prestige. This world we live in is a great place to have power. It's a great place for wealth and success, but it isn't a great place to be a person. The loneliness epidemic that Spencer talked about last week, to hit some of the stats he referenced, 40% of Americans would say they have no confidants. Americans are some of the loneliest people in the world. 20% of millennials say they have zero friends. We're socially connected, but we're relationally fragmented. I'll say it again, the world we live in is a great place to have power, but it isn't a great place to be a person. Kurt Thompson is a psychiatrist. We've talked about him quite a bit, bit. We did a book study on one of his books a couple of weeks back, but he talks about how we all came into this world looking for one thing. It's a face. And there's this shock and surprise at birth where we're just looking and searching for a face. He says, we are all born into the world looking for someone, looking for us, and we remain in this mode of searching for the rest of our lives. He's a psychiatrist saying this. 
I think he knows what he's talking about. That there's something innately wired in us looking for someone who's looking for us. And in that quest for a face or a person, a face that sees you and knows you, what is society met with? Instead, these different revolutions that I just walked through, I mean, we, we just experienced several years of a pandemic where seeing people and in, in, interacting on a personal basis was not just unheard of, but inappropriate and not okay. This is the world that our neighbors are living in, working remotely, not interacting with people in person. I've been um, looking at daycares for our daughter, Sayla, and um, I stumbled upon something looking on the internet, and this is what the internet will do, offering virtual daycare. <laughs> and I was like, okay, how does this work? <laughs> so I just put my kid in front of the screen and they just try their best to occupy them. I have no idea. Let me know if you guys try it. But virtual learning, like that's the society that we're in. Everything is becoming less and less personal. We've forgotten what it means to be human, to be present in mind, body, and soul. We lose empathy because we're not sitting across the table from people. We're not hearing from them directly. We're not feeling what they feel. I heard a statistic that said that 40% of people say Christians are part of the problem that the world is the way it is today. That half people say it's our fault. Like we're the problem. That's why the world is the way it is. What does it look like to create space to connect with one another? It's simple, but it's countercultural to show up, to be with people, to care for others, to be present, to take time, to have empathy, to listen, to have compassion, and to be a part of other people's lives. My hope is that as we encounter those around us living in this subversive way, that they begin to say, I don't know anyone else living like this except those Christians. I don't know anyone else taking the time to see me and to know me and to say my name and to embrace me and welcome me into their home and their life except these Christians. This brings me to the end of chapter 16. Verse 22 as I close says, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. I don't know if you guys remember earlier, but I talked about um, slaves and indentured bond servants weren't given names. They were just named by their birth order or what they could contribute. Tertius would have meant third. So in other words, I third who wrote down this letter greet you in the Lord. Tertius was a scribe. My assumption would be that early in his life, he acquired literacy as a slave, usually taking dictation from the person that he was writing for. So they would tell him what to write down and he would do it. That was his role. Suddenly, in this moment, what I'm envisioning is that Paul telling him what to write and we get to verse 22 and Paul says, okay, third, you're up, your turn. Go ahead, greet some people. You know, like, oh, put me in, coach. Church just didn't ask for it, but Paul went ahead and threw him in. This was revolutionary. Paul is sharing his power and his privilege. He saw third as a brother, not just as someone writing for him. In an impersonal world, to recognize those without status as a brother, that is the gospel. To see them to know them by name, and to name them as sibling. That's the gospel. So who is in 
your oikos, your network, your sphere of influence, your quote-unquote family, who in those spaces hasn't been seen in your workplace, in your classroom, on your drive to work, whatever it may be, who doesn't feel known, who could use someone calling them by name, looking them in the eye, taking them into their home, sharing a meal, slowing down, putting your busy schedule aside. I challenge you right now, envision a face. Write down a name if you know it. Seriously. Who is the Lord revealing to you right now that is an outcast in society that you can greet in the actual meaning of the word? Andy Crouch says, the restoration of culture is the recognition of persons. It's what the early Christians did for Rome, and it's what we should do today. And so as we close out our summer in Rome, may we not forget Jesus as rescuer, representative, reconciler, and restorer. May we join him in this restorative work. Maybe, may we reinstill personhood to a world full of power and also full of loneliness. Let's pray together.